0: who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by SNC coach, Sean Seal. Sean is the host of Upside Strength, which is an amazing resource, which involves a podcast, educational seminars, and a really, really cool YouTube channel, and I recommend everyone to go check it out. Through Upside Strength, Sean has investigated different physiological concepts and the application to training, particularly around endurance sports and CrossFit. It's really been amazing to see Sean's journey, learning new ideas, putting them into practice, and then developing his own ideas around training, testing, and monitoring. In this episode, Sean and I discuss his physiological approach to testing CrossFit athletes, especially around determining different training intensity zones and the importance of low intensity training for aerobic adaptations. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of The Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerny, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting The Progress Theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow the Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Sean Seal. Hi, right, Sean.
1: How are we? We're doing pretty good. Hot, but but all right. How are you, Phil?
0: Yeah, not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on to the Progress Theory. Like, um, I know we were talking before this and I talked about how like, oh, I feel like I've known you for quite some time. It's because I've been listening to so many episodes of Upside Strength. Um, funny enough, I got into your podcast because you had a a friend of mine as a guest. Do you remember Ben Lonergan? Uh,
1: physical prep yeah. with the women's sevens, right? Mm, England yeah. women's sevens. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Of course I remember. Yeah, yeah,
0: so that was the first time I listened to your podcast and I've been listening to your episodes ever since and what I've really Small loved. World. Yeah but one thing I particularly like and I've noticed over time was your focus has leaned towards maybe gone from like an S&C but more towards like a physiology type focus based on the guests that you're having on but I, what I really mm-hmm. liked about it is that you were clearly had questions you had from your own practice so you sought out certain guests to try and answer those questions so it can help develop your practice, which really makes sense from a podcast. And it's definitely something I've been doing uh, in terms of writing a book because I've like, I've got questions. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I have to find very specific guests to answer those questions. So um, I, your approach, I liked because I resonated with it quite a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. It's It was definitely, I, I would definitely say that the podcast was a selfish endeavor to begin <laughs> with. And uh, it serves many, many purposes now for me. But it remains my, I'd say, my number one uh, source of continuing education. Because like you said, I have a variety of interests. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious in, in, in what I do. And sometimes within the topics that I'm comfortable with, sometimes completely outside of that, sometimes with topics that might be interesting for the audience or, or a mix of, of all of those. And so I just, I don't set myself any boundaries. At, at the beginning, I thought, well, should I do it in French? Should I do it in English? And then I thought, well, I'm in the French community here between Switzerland and France, but there's also a lot of international guests that I want to have on that I'm interested in talking with. So I just decided not to restrict myself and just to record in both languages and who can follow will and who cannot, won't. Eventually I'll, I'll have a little bit of, of money coming from the podcast to do the subtitles so everybody can benefit from every episode, no matter the language. So that's coming down the line. And then, like you said, on the topic side of things, I just follow my interests and allow myself to just, yeah, seek out the people that maybe have the answers from you know what I've heard on another podcast or I've seen their YouTube videos or I've read their book and then I have some follow-up questions. Hmm. And I think the podcast is a great platform to, to do that, to dig a little bit deeper. Out of everything that I do, it's made me grow the most out of all you know my different activities. The podcast is 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 pivotal to my evolution in the last two and a half years. And so I I just can't I just can't see myself moving forward without it down the line.
0: Yeah, definitely resonate with that. I um have always been incredibly impressed by the fact that you've you discuss really complex topics, both in French and English, and it's made me very jealous to the point I wish I was good at a second language like french um it was a particular episode that came out recently actually uh Guillaume briant the crossfit athlete yeah i saw that yep. and i was like, oh i wish i <laughs> i wish i spoke french do you want to tell uh, the listeners a little bit more about yourself obviously we're talking about your podcast but obviously you do mm-hmm. a lot of stuff outside of your podcast as well
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so like you said i i run the upside strength podcast started about two and a half years ago now is i think it was the 26th of december 2019, uh, my first episode, discuss a variety of topics from you know basic S and C. I don't touch into nutrition as much as I'd like to, but it's it's just such a complex topic. My wife is a holistic nutritionist, and uh, so I've, I've I've been you know immersed in that world for for many years now. But it's definitely a level up in terms of complexity relative to to training. So I I try to stick maybe I stick with to what's a little bit easier and also what my primary interest is training related questions, exercise physiology, SNC for sports, mental preparation, everything that goes towards either health or performance, really. Besides this, I also have a YouTube channel that is mainly in French right now, although One of my goals is to start making more content in English. I do a lot of thought of the day, kind of five, 10 minute videos every day in French. And I'd like to replicate those in in English as well. Just really sharing my thoughts. And those really help me learn. I I find it very helpful to try and articulate thoughts because I'm not a big writer. And in my opinion, the best two ways to uh, organize your thoughts is either to talk or to write. And like I said, I, I'm not a fan. I'm not a big fan of writing. I know it's a skill. You have to practice it to get better. I haven't done that. But what I have done is, is simply talked to my phone, usually, and shared my thoughts, tried to organize things. And that's helped me both push my understanding a little bit forward, integrate the different material that I come across, whether it's through videos, podcasts, my own podcast, books, uh, or just conversations, answer questions as well from you know the audience, people on Instagram, people on YouTube. So that's my that's my YouTube channel. I also do some personal training. So I was personal training five days a week last year. Beginning of this year, I took it down to three days a week to make more room for the other activities that I'll talk about in a minute. I definitely want to keep a skin in the game, as some might say, and, and, and keep coaching. I, I mainly coach uh, Genpop clients mainly in home. So I, I, I move quite a bit from one client to the next. I've done the, the years of uh, coaching 30, 35 hours in one gym all day every week. It was great when I did it, but I could not see myself doing it now. So I'm happy to, quote unquote, lose half an hour between clients because I have to move from one house to the next. But it's fun. There are different challenges than the ones that we might face with, uh, you know, more dedicated athletes, people that, you know, live to compete. Just trying to help everyday people take better care of themselves, finding time to exercise, sleeping better, taking care of their food, how they think about themselves and exercise. So all those those things kind of tie into the personal training. Then in addition to that, um, about a year and a half ago, I started doing physiological testing. And so I've, I've worked now with, with many different athletes across different sports, whether it's CrossFit, uh, which is kind of one of my main demographic right now, testing on the ergometers mostly, and also for running. So all the monostructurals. Uh, I'm able to to help those athletes with also working with some endurance sport athletes, ultra cyclists, some runners, some triathletes, uh combat sport athletes as well for their general conditioning. I think the general side of of conditioning is usually forgotten because we're we're all into that uh, in that specificity and specific bubble right now where everything has to transfer and everything has to be you know specific to the sport but we we forgot about the foundation a little bit. the testing i uh, started. I used to do quite a bit of it, then it simmered down, now I'm this back up all the just online online coaching, again, mainly directed now to CrossFit athletes around uh, working on the ergs. I did quite a bit of uh, indoor rowing myself. And so I think there's a lot of potential for growth uh, amongst that community, especially when it comes to technique, both on the rower and the ski. So, you know, coaching athletes trying to just move a little bit better on those ergs where... Every watt counts. So if you can, you know, save 10, 20, sometimes 30 watts by just moving more efficiently can make a world of difference. So that's another avenue. And then I've got in-person seminars that I, that I started giving this year as well. So traveling mainly around France over the next few months uh, to, to give that seminar. And then also have some online education that I've been working with both in French and in English. That's on the Upside Strength Academy. Yeah. So that's that's the few things that I have going on. I know it's a bit of a laundry list.
0: Mm. That is a lot of pl- plates spinning at once. It is. Do you think you'll do your seminars in the UK eventually?
1: If there's demand, I'm I'm happy to go anywhere. Mm. I think that for, for now, I've like I said, I started. I did my first seminar in May up in France at a, a friend's gym in in Alsace. Went great. It was full. I had a great time. I really really enjoyed it, and I knew I was going to like it. But that really kind of set the tone for where I am now, which is reorienting all my efforts toward those kind of events so i know i want to do a lot more of those and yeah for now it's in french and like i said my my main audience right now is in french because mainly because of my youtube channel where i post like i said i've been posting almost daily now for two years so um that's that's been quite effective in uh, at least finding people that what i say what i'm saying resonates with but I'm definitely open to the idea of, of, of traveling a little bit farther and actually doing those seminars in English. I think, I think that would be fun for sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it would be really quite popular. What made you go towards the physiology route? Is it because you were starting to work with more CrossFit athletes and you saw a bit of a gap there or was it just purely ah uh, this is a gap in my knowledge, but I find it very, very interesting. I want to learn more.
1: Yeah, it, it was a gap in my knowledge that appeared when I started following Evan Pycon's courses on the Training Think Tank um, yep. classroom. I think it is called or was called. So some the Training Think Tank for those who don't know, uh, an organization within the CrossFit world. They coach some of the best athletes. Definitely put out some of the best content out there, educational material for for coaches and athletes around whether it's physiology, competition skills, uh, and so yeah. I, I, I watched. I think it was it was at the beginning of the pandemic i locked up my back and i was lying on the couch for 2 weeks and i just watched everything that evan had posted on the classroom so that's when it became clear that i didn't know what i was talking about regarding energy systems regarding how things actually work under the the hood and that was the beginning of my interest in human physiology and exercise physiology and just haven't stopped since. I think I've, I've done a deep dive over the last couple of years now into that and trying to just get a good understanding of how things work and trying to understand different perspectives, different models. Some people talk about, you know, lactate measurements. Some people talk about critical power. Those are seemingly not opposite concepts, but usually opposite camps when it comes to agreeing or disagreeing about certain ways of, of seeing things and doing things. So trying to find the the middle ground between all of this, where, wherever those that Venn diagram intersects to simply just get the best understanding that I can and then transfer that into what I do. So I feel like I'm at the stage now where I obviously don't know everything, but I feel like I have a good enough understanding now to start and dedicate myself and my time a bit more towards the programming and the applied side of all this physiology that I've been learning about over the last couple of years but that's really when when the interest started was with with Evans material it's such a fascinating field and there's a lot of interesting people that that talk about those things and i was lucky enough to to have a bunch of them on my podcast um amongst other things so yeah that's i'd say about about 2 years ago is when all of this kind of hmm. started
0: yeah we've had evan on the podcast as well a few weeks ago nice and uh, he is just a fountain of knowledge isn't he and we've had so many listeners message in with you know the emoji where it's like the mind blown Just that over and <laughs> he's over got a few again. of those yeah he's got a few of those yeah and his work is so great how did that information that you've got over the last two years then lead into your testing protocol that you've been doing because i noticed on your instagram you've been working with moxie you've got a vo2 master uh, and you've been also been assessing lactate uh you say the test that you typically do is on an ergo i'm assuming the bike ergo
1: Usually the bike for its, again,
0: general mm. nature and lack
1: of technical constraints yeah, uh, yeah. compared to the rower and the ski. I, I do test on those other machines as well, but I'll usually require that the athlete has a has a really good technique to begin with. Otherwise, uh, I mean, you can definitely test even if the technique's not great, but mm. you'd probably be better off addressing how you move first and, and then trying to test that to actually get an actual picture of your true physiology rather than being limited by how you move um yeah so it's usually a bike
0: cool what kind of variables are you you really focused on so obviously with the moxie you're looking at blood oxygenation levels you know oxygenated venturi uh, variables as well with the vo2 master are you just doing ramp tests or are you looking at different power outputs and seeing what level of efficiency that the athletes have particularly if i guess if you're working with crossfit athletes
1: yeah, yeah that's a good question so the protocol is always a I think a, a very interesting question to to dive into and the why behind choosing one protocol over another the one I'm using now is from my estimation the best compromise between everything that you can do in in, in one in, in a single test so it's a step test it's an intermittent step test uh, in the way of four minute of work at a continuous output whether it's watts on a bike or you know, kilometers per hour uh, if I'm testing a runner. Uh, four minutes on, one minute off. So complete uh, rest in that, uh, in that minute. And what I'll try and do is have usually nine to 11 steps. So it's a 45 to 55 minute test. It's pretty long. The first half an hour is really easy. Let's say we do 10, 10 steps. If I calibrate my test properly, we get to 10 steps. It's at the point of failure. That's about a one to 10 on the RPE scale. So, we start really, really easy, and the first five, six intervals are not they're not hard, they're not challenging. It's like a very long warm up leading into those higher intensities and One of the things that made me come to this protocol was that I started diving into exercise physiology only with one moxie. that's what I had hmm. and back when I started with that, I obviously thought you could interpret the world out of one single data set coming from a moxie, which is definitely something that I've changed my mind about since then. Uh, so I don't discriminate. I just try and collect as much information as I can uh, at every power output or at every stage of the test with all the tools that I have available. So like you said, I, I'll use a, a heart rate monitor. I'll assess RPE as well from the athlete standpoint throughout the test because I, in my opinion it's a very important metric that we just tend to leave aside too much in the world of uh, data and, mm-hmm. and objectivity and all that stuff. So yeah, heart rate, RPE, lactate, like you said, ventilation and also VO2, muscle oxygen uh, saturation via the MOXIE. Uh, Those are kind of the main metrics that I'll track, and I'll do that throughout the whole test. Uh, Obviously, you could see the the recovery of heart rate in those minutes of rest. You can see the reoxy slopes on the MOXIE as well during those minutes of rest. So, I think those remain fairly interesting. It also gives a good window to take a lactate sample, usually done within you know 15 to 20 seconds. But if I have to take a second one, then I can do it. And so I, I feel like that was the kind of the, the happy medium between a very short ramp test where then you have to correct for the ramp because there's a delay in the, in the VO2 response and, and all those other components. Four minutes, why four minutes? Because it takes about two minutes for all the systems to find some kind of equilibrium in the body. We, we kind of know it if we start a hard effort we don't really know what we're into until minute two, right? Mm-hmm. 90 seconds, 120 seconds. This is when you really know how it's going to be for the rest of your effort. So with four minutes, I feel like you can get a good two minutes of steady state, quote unquote, at least a balance between delivery and utilization uh, of oxygen in the in the body. Uh, and that allows me to, to tease out some average heart rates on the last minute, uh, average VO2 on the last minute, average uh, ventilation, how somebody's breathing. Uh, that's another aspect that I focus on as well is how are people breathing relative to their capacity. So I do a spirometry test before the uh, the, the the profiling uh, step test so that I know what capacity they have, and with the VO2 master I can assess how much of that volume they're actually breathing. Should they be breathing, you know, slower, faster, m- deeper, or or not? That's all things that I try to look at. And then I also have a questionnaire that I send ahead of time. Uh, That informs me on the current layout of of that athlete's training, what kind of volume they perform at lower intensities, at higher intensities, depending on their sport, depending on their goals. And then taking all of this and and now what I'm also looking at, obviously, is the pool of uh, data sets that I've been able to collect uh, over, over over the last while with all the different athletes is trying to establish an overall profile for the athlete, trying to be, again, precise in all those different systems. Uh, and establish some some baselines as to what is good, what is not, or what is preferable for such and such athlete. And then on that basis, uh, recommend some training interventions, which again, are usually going to be pretty simple because most people don't do the simple stuff. So they can usually get quite good adaptations from them. So a lot of low intensity training is, is what I'll usually recommend because again, most people don't do it, especially if we talk about the CrossFit crowd, uh, even endurance athletes, most of the ones that I test, they might be doing low intensity training, but they're actually doing it too hard <laughs> relative to their physiology. So we recalibrate those, you know, those intensities, those zones. And then that, so that's really the, the three main goals is determine the athlete's profile at this point in time, and then determine their strengths and weaknesses, orient their training relative to either their goals, their sport, their needs, et cetera, et cetera. And try to give uh, as coherent solution as possible to the athlete, not just throw a, throw a bunch of you know physiology data at them and say, okay, well this is this is you now now figure things out. No, no, I'll try and and add in some educational components to the test as well, so the athlete understands why we're doing such and such measurement, what it actually means, and then how does that translate into training and what the different types of training are going to have as an effect on their physiology so that we can actually track that over time. So we have all the data, and when we do the retest, well, we better see improvements. Otherwise, it means I, I missed the boat. Uh, so usually if they do the work and, um, and I was right on my interpretation of the data and what they needed, we'll, we'll see some, uh, some good improvements uh, over time from test to retest.
0: What kind of changes would you expect to see t- uh, from test to retest? to show that they've actually improved in terms of their ventilation and, say, oxygen saturation levels with the Moxie. What what kind of change would you expect to see? Uh,
1: So I I don't actually use the Moxie to assess. I've seen interesting changes uh, between a test and a retest on the Moxie, but I've also seen no change on the Moxie in significant changes elsewhere. So I try not to just, again, rely on one metric. If I can do a full retest, I'll obviously look at all the metrics that I have VO two, I just tested a, um, a ultra cyclist recently for the for the third time, and over four to five months, he's he's gained quite a bit in terms of efficiency. So VO two consumption consumption at different power outputs. So that's been interesting to look at. Uh, sometimes it's in the way of lower heart rate for a given power output, lower lactate values depending on where we are on on the on the curve, higher thresholds. Whether that's Measured via a ventilation or lactate, or I also get I also usually get people to do a three and a twelve minute test prior to the assessment, so that we can calculate their critical power. That helps me calibrate the test. That also gives them two performance metrics that they can retest down the line, and we can see that profile evolve. Obviously, if I give a lot of sprinting uh, sprint work to do to an athlete, well, we're we're going to expect their W prime to go up. If we if we did some some lower intensity work, we'll we'll see everything going going up. Uh, so it really depends on the intervention, and that's one thing that's interesting now, where I'm starting to get quite a few retests after the the initial ones, and a a solid eight to twelve week training block. We can really see what works and where, uh, what the main effects are, and try to you know link up different interventions with different adaptations. Uh, obviously, not everybody's going to respond the same. People that have less uh, training volume and, and and lower training age are going to adapt really fast at first. So. It might seem sometimes a little bit, you know, it it might seem like a lot. And obviously, we're not going to get the same changes month after month, year after year, once we start having a properly structured program, simply because of uh, accommodation. It really depends on what we've been targeting and training. Again, that's why I don't discriminate. I collect all the data and then see how that compares uh, from one test to the next.
0: I mean, I love Mark Burnley's All Out Physiology YouTube channel. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I know... Oh, yeah read a lot of his work around critical power. Do you often use that test as well? I think you mentioned about how it's giving you a bit more information. So if we're looking at, let's just say, a lactate profile and we'd like to see two sort of inflection points, is the critical power you're using is kind of like a marker of roughly around that second inflection point and then you have like a lactate threshold as the first one. Is, is that the kind of two steps that you use and you can kind of utilize that to determine uh, training intensity domains?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You're, you're right on the, you hit the, the nail on the head there. So like I said, I get them to do a three and a 12 minute test ahead of time. So that, that allows me to estimate their critical power. Uh, if they were to repeat the test a second or a third time, we can have pretty high confidence that we're going to be you know close to the, the actual values. I've also one limitation of this, uh, uh, this method, I guess, or this protocol, I would say, is for athletes that are very powerful that have big W primes. Uh, it tends to overestimate critical power a little bit. So that's the only thing that I that I look at if somebody is above 20 kilojoules uh, of W prime. I will usually, you know, be wary of pushing or actually trusting, let's say, that that critical power that we that we reached, and then that usually gives me the eighth step on my ten step uh, profiling. Test So because I I know they're usually going to do two steps after their Mm. threshold, and then they're usually going to be out of juice. Maybe somebody does three, but that's quite rare. Um, So that, like I said, allows me to calibrate the test, allows me to see as well, cross-reference this with the lactate values, with the ventilation values, uh, with what I see on the moxie as well. Do all those different things correspond? And we know there's a gray zone there between maybe an MLSS and a critical power and everything that falls in between reps compensation point, even a deoxy break point two or, or something like that on the moxie, all those things live on a, on a spectrum, some, sometimes a little bit tighter together, sometimes a little more spread apart depending on, on the metrics you look at. So yeah, it's it's just one more data point for me to try and be as precise as possible with intensity domains, which then kind of uh, you know uh, trickles down into the, the training zones that I'll, I'll give the athlete. So, like you said, intensity domains first. Lactate threshold one is usually what I'll what I'll be looking at. I will look at ventilation as well. I will look at the what I usually do is because as you as you know, um, there's there's a uh, 50 different methods to calculate a uh, a lactate threshold based on any given curve. Hmm. So I I quite like the baseline plus uh, 0.5 for that first on a on a third degree polynomial curve i think that's what it's called hmm. uh, so i'll use the xphyslab.com application that they have available online for those who don't know xphyslab.com you just type in your the step length step duration the the watt values the lactic values if you have them the heart rate values and they'll calculate your curve and they'll actually plot every single method on the same curve and then you can kind of compare them and see okay well the log-log is way off of the 0.05 in that case. But in this other case, it's super close. So which one is actually, quote-unquote, the best or the right one? Uh, but like I said, I'll, I'll look at lactate threshold 1 as my base value. And then I'll triangulate with the ventilation, with the RPE, and with the MOXIE data as well to try and, okay, am, am I on the spot here? Or if I'm kind of in between two steps, should I go up or down? And those other metrics will kind of help me interpret and and or just decide in which direction I'm going to push it. And then, like you said, critical power. I also look at Lactate Threshold 2 via uh, some combination of the modified DMAX methods that are uh, available out there. I'll usually look at them uh, in unison and with the critical power and with the RPE and with the, uh, the Moxie data. And again, that allows me to determine, okay, what's my best interpretation of all this data that we've collected. That gives us our intensity domains, that gives us our thresholds, and then that gives us our training zones, this athlete's training zone for this modality and for right now, given that if I do my job properly and if they do the training, those things are going to change or we hope that they're going to change. And so hence the importance of reassessing down the line, which can be done with me through a full test or I also devised a bit of an intermediary test or, or kind of an update test that they can do to see how things have changed after two or three months of training, if they live far away or they just want to kind of do a quick check-in without doing the full test. So that's an option as well. But it's it's important to have have these kind of values tracked over time, even if it's just the heart rate and the RPE. They'll usually paint a pretty accurate picture of what's going on together with the step test, which is not meant as a performance metric. But when an athlete is able to do two extra steps uh, where they failed the previous time and they're they able to push you know eight extra minutes on the, on the same test with the same parameters of, of, of duration and, and rest and wattage, to me, it still, it still speaks volumes to their, their improvements from a performance standpoint. So that's why I try to collect as much as I can to try and be as, as true, I guess, as I can in my interpretation, give the athlete the, the best data to work with and then have that data to compare down the line as well.
0: The test that you've devised for athletes to do if they're away from you is that pretty much the same but you're only really utilizing rpe and heart rate because i guess that's really quite an important test for many people because they don't have access to vo 2 master or the moxie so i can imagine people listening to this podcast thinking oh i might give that a go yeah sure i don't have the equipment but i can still find do something that will allow me to estimate these uh, training intensity domains and i'll Progress my training from there.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent, and that's actually what I'm starting to move towards. Looking at the not so distant future, I want to start writing some semi individualized uh, training programs for mainly for CrossFitters around the these ergs, around the bike erg, the rower, and the ski erg as well. And so, trying to devise a way that I could again individualize the intensities as best as possible, and have something for them to track progress. So it's exactly what you said. Essentially, it's the exact same setup in terms of the test. So let's say somebody did their initial test on a bike erg and they started at an intensity of 100 watts and they were going up in 25 watt increments. So they do four four minutes at 100 watts, one minute full rest, one minutes at 125 watts, one minute full rest, all the way to until they can't hold the pace anymore. For me, that would be at the 325 watt mark. And so if I do it with all the gear, then once I do it by myself, I could do it simply with like you said a heart rate monitor and with the RPE scale that i provide which is the same as the one during the test which has a bit of descriptive notions within each uh, brackets simply so people can have a reference point because some for some people it's really hard to listen to themselves and you'll you'll see a a full step test and they'll do one 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 two two three seven ten on the rpe (laughs) of each step which usually means that they can't they don't know how to listen to themselves very well so i I give that and yeah if they can if they're able to replicate the exact same test and that's what I love about the concept two machines super easy to plan intervals into the pm5 super simple to replicate the exact same setting uh, that you did in your initial test and then I just get people to record their heart rate data via uh, I mean multiple apps can do it but I use the VO2 master app simply because that's the one I'm I'm comfortable with you're able to extract a nice clean csv with mm-hmm. the raw data and I'm able to overlay the heart rate data from test one and from that intermediary test that they, that they might do by themselves. And we can compare, again, I look at usually the last minute of each four-minute step, and I'll take the average of this for the heart rate reference uh, at each power output. And so I'm able to compare that really easily from one test to the next, able to compare uh, heart rate recovery in those one minute of, of rest between the steps. Like you said, compare the RPE as well, see how far they went, on the whole test. And I think it's something that's quite accessible for anybody to do at home in the sense of doing your three and 12 minute efforts to calculate your your critical power. Use that as the eighth step on this 10 step step test. Start around, it's usually between 30 and 35% of the critical power that was found. And, and just kind of break it down into the, the appropriate steps. For some people, it's going to be 10 watt increments. Uh, for some of the, the stronger guys, uh, the best guys that have tested is 30 watts from one step to the next. So it can there's, there's a huge variation from one person to the other here. And the goal is to pick the interval or the increment in watts that's going to allow you to end on that 10-ish steps because in my estimation, if you do many less steps than 10, you don't have a lot of data to look at. And you, it's hard to then kind of pinpoint those inflection points that we're looking for, threshold one, threshold two. But then if you go beyond twelve, now you're on the bike for more than an hour. It's very long. Some people might, you know, get simply fatigued by the duration of the effort, regardless of the intensity of the test. So that's why I try to stay within those those ten steps. And and again, you, you get a pretty good idea of that intensity distribution for yourself on the given modality that you're testing. Uh, I think it's important to point out that. You cannot just transfer your zones or your values from a bike test to a run, for example, or vice versa. I've seen some pretty, fairly close values in CrossFitters between the bike and the rower in heart rates and then uh, the, with the equivalent wattage. But it's still not always the same. Uh, but again, three and 12 minute tests. do that step test, four minutes on, one minute off with the parameters that I that I mentioned. And then do your training and then do the exact same test again, three to four months down the line compare the heart rate data, compare your RPE, compare your last step value in watts. I guess the only difficult part with this, if you don't have any measurement tools, is finding threshold one. So what I'll usually do is I'll I'll use a three-tiered system where for people that have done no low-intensity training in the last three months or one hour or less per week, I'll usually put their first threshold at, I think it was 50... 57% 57% of their critical power, which is a fairly low value. Uh, for people who've done two to three hours per week of of low intensity training in the last three months, I'll put their threshold one at 65%, I believe. And then for highly trained endurance athletes who are doing four hours or more per week for multiple weeks of, of properly calibrated zone two work, I'll plot it at 70 or 72% of critical power. So that's kind of my best way of guesstimating where that first threshold might be based on how much low intensity work the different athletes have been doing. And yeah, from there, you get you get your intensity domains or at least a rough estimation of them. From what I've seen and, and, and from everything I've been able to collect, uh, I'd say that's probably the most accurate way of determining your training zones uh, without any measurement tools beside a heart rate monitor. That might evolve down the line. I might find other ways to approach it that make more sense. But for now, those, that's three efforts, and that gives you a wide range of information on, on yourself. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a great starting point for for people who want to dig into it, or like I said, kind of that in-between step for people that have done the testing and, and want to see where they're at now.
0: During the testing, how consistent are the participants with maintaining the exact power output? So for example, uh, I've tried some on a Watt bike and find that You know the the power output. Even though you're say you're aiming for one fifty, like it's fluctuating around between like one forty and one sixty, and you're you're aiming to try and hit that point, but it's not quite doing it. Uh, I've never done it on a like a Concept Two erg with the bike, but is it a lot Mm -hmm. more consistent, being able to maintain certain power outputs, which in turn, I guess, would be much better for the data.
1: Yeah, it's it's. I would say compared to a Watt bike, it seems to be a little more consistent. I've seen the instant value insta watt values on on a watt bike and like you said there can be some huge ups and downs and mm. sometimes hard for the athlete to just stick to one value but for most people that I've tested on the on the concept2 Orgs, even if they didn't have prior experience on that machine um it's 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 still it's okay to to, to stick with the power I I usually say I'll, I, I'll usually tell them that this is their only job for the next hour <laughs> is to just Try to be as smooth as you can, and try to stay close as close as you can to the value that you're supposed to hit. Plus minus five percent, plus minus five watts usually is is fine on the instant value. If they get distracted, I'll I'll say, hey, look at your watts. Usually the average of the four minute step always falls within two or three watts of the of the step. Some in a some some people in a lab setting might say that the, it's 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 too far off and it's going to skew the data and. They probably wouldn't be wrong in saying that, uh, but again, it's it's the best compromise that I've been able to find. So I'm happy leaving a couple watts aside uh, if it just means we can get collect all that information. It's it's fairly consistent on the on the wattage, and most people don't have it an issue sticking with the with the watts. It gets harder when you're in the last two steps, and I mean, I guess that's the nature of of a nine and a ten RPE is that it's hard to hold the intensity steady. But I guess that's just uh, the name of the game there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll have to try it out on a concept too soon. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. For your critical power, I'm sure I recognized the idea around doing the three-minute test and the 12-minute test because I think I saw it on Twitter where you were asking ideas around, you know, I'm doing this. Why should I use 12 over nine? I think it was. Apologies if I'm wrong there. I've only ever done the three-minute test. uh, But what benefits do you get from doing both the three-minute and the 12-minute? And then how close would you have those tests together?
1: That's a great question. So I think I was asking 3 and 12 versus 5 and 15, something like that. Oh, yeah, that I've heard makes more sense. Some yeah. people use the longer-ish tests. It's simply what i found in the literature. I think Mitty Cordy, who works or used to work with the Dutch track cycling team, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that published a couple of papers where they were looking at critical power calculations from two efforts versus three and looking at the reliability of the data and what they found is simply that both in running and in in cycling what they found is just that the athletes need to be familiar with those efforts because obviously on a test retest like on anything if you know the effort a little bit better you'll be able to extract you know 5 to 10% more out of yourself so in in a in a perfect world, I'll get I would get everybody to do those tests twice each, but again, for simplicity's sake, I just need an estimation to get going. And having a three minute effort, which is not a three minute all out test like you might have done, mm-hmm. uh, simply because this one, from everything that I've read, it's probably the most practical, but it's definitely not very easy to set up. And most people will have a hard time actually doing the effort because of how hard it is. Mm. So I've, I've, I've shied away from this three-minute all-out test. And so the three-minute that I use is simply uh, for max watts. So three minutes for max average watts. So you'll tend to see a little decrease in power over the last 30 seconds if you do it really well. So you're, you're going off, not pedal to the metal, but, but you're going off really, really mm. hard. And you usually again see a little drop in power over the last thirty seconds because that means the tank is really empty. The twelve minute is is going to be a, a bit more of a progressive effort over the twelve minutes. What I usually advise is thinking three minute segments, and I want an eight out of 10, 8 out of ten on the first. Uh, I guess that's the first half of the effort going into nine out of ten and ten out of ten on the fr- on the last two uh, three minute segments, which will usually yield some some good uh, some good results. And you know if they have. A bit more they can they could really push on the last minute to try and and bump that average up so that the only reason i've been using those two is because the other options which are like you said the three minute all out test or five different efforts at fixed wattages or five other to, to get a curve they just they just don't seem very practical to me i don't want to have someone do five tests in order to give them a a, a simple uh, estimation of hmm. of where that, that value might be so Again, uh, just like with my testing protocol, it's the best compromise I've found. And uh, sometimes, if if people have a, another effort like a six minute on the bike or a, a 2k row on the rower, we can plot that as a third point to kind of validate what we have with the other two. So that that's why I've been using the three and 12 simply because that's what I've found in in that that side of the literature. But I know it's not a, a, a completely foolproof, approach given that again if you're not familiarized with the efforts you're not going to have as big an accuracy you only have two points and you're extracting critical power and w prime so stats folks will tell you that you you can't necessarily infer two data points from two data points i mean you're not going to have a good reliability on that it would be better to have three data points to go and extract two or two two results or interpretations i and i hear that and i'm conscious of that but again it's just it's the easiest way that I've found so far to to estimate that, uh, and it's fairly short too. And you, you asked about the spread. For some people, I'll get them to do it the same day. If we're crammed for time, I'll get them to do a 12 minute. They usually recommend at least 40 minutes of of easy work in between to replenish W prime. With fairly trained people, you could put them put those efforts on the same day. They'll be able to recover and do it again, and and have a high high, high output. Uh, people with less training obviously an all-out effort is is taxing and they that might impact the second value so i'll usually just say do them 48 hours apart pick whichever one you want to begin with and then do the other one uh the following time uh, and again if we have a lot of time or if they want to they could do it again but for the estimation just the one shot is is a, is a good start i would say
0: i'm definitely gonna have to give that a try like i've done yeah like you said i've done the three-minute all-out test uh, but I've only done it on a bike because I, I just don't have the guts to do it with a run, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, uh, I can just see yeah. something going. Uh, and then when it comes to the bike, I feel, I mean, I, I go all out for the first, uh, well, you go all out for the whole thing and you, you see that spike and starts to go down. But whenever I've done it, I can just see this sort of like rise and power output towards the end because clearly I know it's near the end. Come on, keep going, keep going. And I know it's really supposed to find that curve off, but really I'm going down and then up slightly because I f- I f- so I feel like I'm not judging an all- out effort as well as I could, which which in turn could affect the data. So you know the idea of pushing for a maximum average over that allotted time sounds like it could be something that could be better for for me personally, but definitely I'll be interested to see what the data looks like after playing around with that. Oh, that looks cool. Mm-hmm. with a lot of your testing protocols. A lot of it seems to be, and this is maybe the impression I get, that a lot of the people that you're working with aren't doing enough of that low-intensity zone two work and you're developing thresholds so you can, look, try and stay in this <laughs> intensity domain, please. Why um, is training at a low-intensity so important for these particular athletes, particularly CrossFitters?
1: From what I've been able to to see and, uh, I guess, learn from all the proponents of this type of work in the endurance world and and see as a direct effect on CrossFitters, it's it's really the foundation for all the other adaptations uh, and all the training that you're going to do. So the way that I like to describe it is that Zone 2 is, unless you're you know a marathon runner or an ultra distance runner, Zone 2 is not specific to your sport. Zone 2 is general in nature. And what's great about general is, is that it's going to transfer to everything that's specific. So... People need to stop thinking about, okay, how is that zone two going to make me faster in my Fran time, for example. Hmm. Um, I don't like to think about it that way. I like to think about it in the following way. That zone two is going to allow you to train more often, tolerate more intensity, tolerate more volume, recover better between sets, recover better between training sessions. That in turn is going to push your performance up. We know how it works with tonnage, uh, with weightlifters. And how that correlates highly to performance on the competition floor. We know how volume of training, especially low intensity training, correlates well with every endurance sports from, from biathlon to marathon training and all those other disciplines, even, even cycling as well. They're starting to see that in, uh, I, th- I believe it was Peter Leo, Jeron Schwartz, and uh, James Sprague that, that published something mm-hmm. recently where they were looking at essentially the, the power duration relationships or critical power uh, to talk simply uh, fresh and then under fatigue, and then look at what elements of training have the biggest influence on the decrement of power between a fresh critical power profile and a critical power profile after 2000 kilojoules of work or, or something like that. Uh, I forget exactly how they assessed it. And they they saw that obviously that volume in the moderate domain had the best influence on least decrement of power between fresh and and fatigued critical power profile, which is, which is paramount for a cyclist who needs to ride for four hours and then needs to sprint and then needs to be able to push in the last 10 kilometers. So we see those performance metrics arise. In CrossFit, again, everything that I've heard, and it always takes eight to 12 weeks. That's kind of the window of adaptation for those who have never done it or weren't doing it at the right intensity or weren't doing enough of it. After 8 to 12 weeks, they all come back and say, I feel better when I do intensity. So they're actually able to push harder in their high-intensity sessions thanks to the low-intensity training that they've done. So like I said, the foundation, the support for the high-intensity training, they're able to tolerate more volume of training in general. Uh, Some of them even say that they sleep better. Obviously, if we stay on CrossFit, it's such a sympathetic dominant kind of sport. It's all high-intensity all the time. Obviously, the best and the best of the best don't train like this all the time because they've reached such a high level now that they can they can really dig themselves into a hole if they were to train that way. So there's obviously a lot of work on skill and movement efficiency, uh, but but still there's a, there's a high high training volume. Same for combat sports, high demand, especially for mixed martial arts, where it's super time consuming to become good at all those different sports. And so that zone two work is just going to allow you to tolerate more training in general and then recover better. And that is going to feed into your your performance directly. So without even going to the physiology, that's what I've seen as a training effect of that low-intensity training. And for somebody doing none of it, just doing one to two hours a week, again, for eight to 12 weeks is going to have some pretty significant uh, effects. And then for those who are ready to do a little bit more, usually the return on investment is well worth it.
0: Mm. with uh i know we've talked a lot about crossfit athletes in this episode a lot of what we talked about in the rest of this season is looking at hybrid athletes or someone that wants to improve in like powerlifting but also wants to do really good in running or a triathlon Mm. for example um have you tested these athletes before and do you notice physiologically any difference between them and the crossfitters or just thinking based on that zone two work with the crossfitters not doing enough potentially i'm, I'm generalizing there uh, versus i guess these hybrid athletes that may do a significant portion more just because it's they are trying to improve in a sport which is uh, zone two work is a bit more well known a bit more popular in did you see any difference between uh, the two and the tests that you've done so far
1: i haven't i haven't tested many hybrid athletes outside of crossfit uh, and and I, I think you're you're right to generalize that Crossfitters don't do enough low-intensity training. And if they do it, they usually do it too hard. But again, that's the case for 97% <laughs> of everybody that I've tested so far. The low-intensity is not low enough. Uh, like Charlie Francis used to say, keep your highs high and your lows low. Uh, so it's it's important to uh, be very conservative on that low-intensity. But no, to answer your question directly, I have not tested uh, those athletes. So I couldn't give you a point of comparison. However, I have had some echoes from a few power that I, that I talked to, uh, in, in the French community that have started to integrate even half an hour, 45 minutes a week of low intensity training. And even they felt positive, you know, adaptations and benefits from this low intensity were contrary to what most people might think. Yeah. Better sleep, better volume tolerance. I mean, it's, it's the same. It's the same that comes back, uh, for pretty much everybody, but, you know, seeing that. And I, and I think we, we, we're talking performance here, but I think from a health standpoint, it's mm. really important to emphasize that this type of work helps you become metabolically efficient and healthy. Because I've seen a, I've seen a bunch of very strong, powerful uh, CrossFitters that are metabolically, you know, that look like a type 2 diabetic metabolically. And you look at the, their lactate curve and where their threshold one is relative to the rest of their profile, and they're very, very far off the mark. So I think we can talk about performance but at the end of the day if if somebody's reluctant to to even consider that for their performance for the health stand, from a health standpoint especially with the times that we've just gone through emphasizing how important it is to be you know metabolically healthy you know can't be stressed enough and and this is the type of work that will bring those uh those adaptations I have maybe a an example of that the the ultra cyclist I was mentioning before he's he's in his 60s he's been riding mm-hmm. for 40 years, 50 years, and he's a type 1 diabetic. And upon recalibrating his, his uh, first threshold and his zone 2 work and emphasizing that intensity, and he's fortunate enough to have a lot of time to train. So he'll easily do 15 to 20 hours uh, of training per week uh, with 12 to 15 of that being uh, low intensity. And he can usually do, you know, four, three to five-hour stretches at a time, three times a week, which is unheard wow. of and really fantastic for mm-hmm. those kind of adaptations. And upon recalibrating his zone two, I tested him eight weeks later, his absolute lactate values had gone down about half a point on the low end, and his threshold had moved 15 watts upwards. And more interestingly than that, his insulin intake had gone down 40%. In eight weeks, he was requiring 40% less insulin throughout the day, thanks to the the low intensity work that we had been doing and his is Improved efficiency from a, a metabolic standpoint, so that for me is is almost more interesting than all the the power metrics getting better for competitors is like look at the impact we can have on someone's health with some very very simple training. Sure, it takes a bit of time, but it's the most accessible and you know the the easiest training to do so so that's that's another aspect that I've seen that is very important in my opinion, both for competitors, whether it's for CrossFit, powerlifters, like we were talking about, hybrid athletes, or, or, you know, gen pop as well.
0: I've got to ask, what does a metabolically diabetic or someone that's almost metabolically diabetic, especially with those CrossFitters, what does that look like in terms of where their thresholds are or in terms of the data? That's a, yeah, very interesting point.
1: Yeah, so I, I haven't, I haven't personally tested uh, a whole bunch of diabetics and been able mm. to assess their profiles and and uh, compare that. But I've seen other people post data about those populations. And what you'll usually see is highlighted values at very low power outputs, uh, which amongst other things might signify that they have a high reliance on carbohydrates at lower mm. intensities and an inability to uh, oxidize uh, fats in general. We What we'll usually see Uh, And and that's one metric that I don't have with the VO2 master is that that fat oxidation curve, but I've seen enough other people's data to see the uh, inverse correlation between the lactate curve and the fat oxidation curve. So you can, and and as we know, lactate is a signaling molecule within the body amongst other things. And it will signal essentially the more lactate you have in the blood, the less you're going to free and utilize uh, fatty acids. So, what you want to see ideally is some low lactate values if you want to have uh, a high proportion of, of fat oxidation going on. So what you'll usually see in, in, in the few crossfitters that I've tested that, you know, they're strong, they're, they're ripped, they have a lot of muscle mass, and they're, they're strong on, the, on the, the high intensity stuff. But then you look at them and they're at one watt per kilo or 1.2 watts per kilo if we talk in relative terms, and they'll be at two 2.2 millimoles. There is no, they don't even have a one millimole in their profile. It's just everything starts at two. And then there's a plateau at two, 2.2, 2.5 for a while, and then it goes up. And from what I've heard from the the people that work well on the health side, a normal lactate value will be between, say, 0.5 and 2.5. On the higher end being usually what you see in a diabetic population or metabolically compromised mm. folks. Uh, and yeah, sometimes that's what you see in, in CrossFitters as well just because you do high intensity work and just because you train hard five, six, seven days a week, uh, sometimes twice a day, does not mean that uh, your engine is is optimized for efficiency.
0: That's really interesting, They're really, really interesting. Never really thought of it that way. But Sean, that was absolutely incredible. If you had any recommendations, and it's kind of summarizing a lot of what we talked about, especially around low intensity work, what would your recommendations be for any CrossFit athletes that are listening to try and improve their performance or even give the test that you've described a go?
1: Yeah, so like I said, if they're willing to, to test themselves a little bit, three minute effort for max watts, 12 minute effort for max watts, either the same day with lots of rest in between or on two separate days, 48 hours apart, use that to calibrate that step test. I have a video on my YouTube channel. It's in French currently, but I'll probably come to, to do it in English as well if I get enough comments on there telling cool. me to do it in English. So yeah,
0: I'll find it and comment. <laughs> it's, called, it's
1: called Intermediary Test on my YouTube channel. And I, I describe how to set up the, the steps and then how to measure your heart rate with the app that I mentioned to extract a nice CSV that you can compare down the line. Once you do all that, I think even just even just before doing this, One recommendation that I have for everybody is try to assess what you've been doing over the last six months in terms of training, different training intensities, different uh, methods of training, and then maybe lean towards... uh, So the low intensity has to be a a constant. It it never really goes away. It's going to fluctuate in volume between, I like to say, between one and 30 hours per week, depending on who you are and what time of the season it is. But that's a constant. But on the higher intensity stuff, if we if we talk in zones, if we go from three to seven, look at what you've been doing, what type of time domain you've been hitting, and then go train outside of this for a while. So if you're in CrossFit and all you've been doing is, you know, high-ish intensity efforts between say four and twenty minutes, well, maybe you should look at doing some tempo work where you're gonna be looking at. Uh, you know, eventually 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 minutes of effective work in that zone over a training session. Maybe you should look at wing gates. Maybe you should look at, you know, kind of high high intensity sprints, 60 seconds at a nine or 10 RPE uh, repeated with lots of rest in between types of efforts that are actually high intensity that most of those people never actually see because they're always in the middle, right? They're always in the middle of kind of zone four, zone five, if you want to put a zone on on CrossFit. This is kind of where the sport lives. Nobody really goes above, nobody really goes below. So simply exploring intensities that you haven't subjected yourself to in a long time. As Alex Hutchinson said uh on my podcast, he's the author of Endure, mm. which is a phenomenal yeah, uh, great read book. for those yeah, yeah. Phenomenal mm. book on, on endurance sports uh and 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 psychology as well, which which I like a lot. The best stimuli is the one you've never had. Or the one that you haven't had for three to six months. Your body's mm-hmm. gonna respond better to something that it hasn't been subjected to. We know the law of accommodation. We know how we, we plot the adaptations plateau the farther you go into it and and the the more you do it, the more you need to actually make marginal gains on it. So sometimes just going outside of this and, and training in, in zones or intensities or time domains that you haven't touched in a long time, that's gonna yield some really significant training adaptations but you have to bear in mind that it's going to suck because you're not good at them because you haven't done them. So if you can get over that hump of, Oh, I don't, I don't like this work because it it's gross. And when gates and, and 60 second quasi all out efforts are pretty, pretty disgusting, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much as bad as they come Uh The three minute test, three minute all out test will top that obviously, but those efforts are hard and same for some, you know, tempo work. What's a six out of 10? I I know. And I, I've done all the mistakes myself, so I talk a lot. But when I was rowing, I never did a low-intensity session in 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 the time, in the months that I that I train hard. I, I don't know what 6 out of 10 actually is <laughs> on a on a 40, 60-minute session. So doing a tempo session, being like, oh, this is what it feels like. It burns a bit, but it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's not that hard. Oh, I could definitely push harder now, and that's usually what I always ended up doing. I don't think i had ever done a session below 8 out of 10 uh, RPE. And so… Just exploring things that we haven't done in a while usually yields some some interesting results.
0: Yeah, Amazing recommendations. Where can people, especially that video that you mentioned earlier, just so I can comment on it, but where can people find uh, yeah. everything to do with Upside Strength?
1: Uh, so you'll have the Upside Strength YouTube channel. Like I said, I post mainly in French right now, but what I want to do more of is content in English. So if you guys are interested in more English content on my channel, come and comment on any videos uh, and p- post a comment in English and say, do more English videos. <laughs> That'll just drive me to do more there. Uh, UpstateStrengthAcademy.com is my educational uh, platform. I recently translated the course that I that I made on uh, understanding thresholds and training zones uh, because it was a very confusing topic or those were confusing topics when I kind of started getting interested in exercise physiology. So I tried to synthesize everything that I've learned from every point of view uh, in that online course on those uh, topics so people can come out with a good understanding of how those things work and there's going to be more educational products that I'll work on down the line Instagram uh, uh, upside underscore strength and the strength podcast on Spotify Apple podcasts those are main the main places where, where I live Twitter as well at Sean Seal I, I try to, to post some stuff over there as well so I, I do my best to be everywhere but those are definitely the, the places where it'll be easier to find me
0: yeah well we definitely put all of that in the show notes and we recommend that everyone that's listening to check all of them out but sean that's amazing thank you so much
1: thank you phil it was a great pleasure to come on your show and uh, your questions were great i had a lot of fun and looking forward to the next one
0: yeah definitely we're gonna have to go round two i think i've got more questions but we'll save them for the next one
1: sounds good